E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Fresa is a grape variety and it dates back at least to the 1700s, though there is a possible mention in the early 1500s when a wine called Friserum demanded a high price. By the late 1700s, Fresa was deeply integrated in the Piedmont lexicon. Fresa is closely related to Nebbiolo, and DNA profiling shows that one is a parent of the other, and there could also be a relationship with Viognier. In 2000, Italy was growing about 3,600 acres, and some producers blend, while others make single-variety wines. Fresa is a very unique grape, with a distinct personality. It's highly aromatic with scents of wild berries. It's also high in acid, high in tannins, and it can be high in bitterness. Its unique, intense flavor profile sort of polarizes the grape among wine drinkers. Some love it, and some hate it. But it's important for genetic diversity to have grape varieties like this with such distinct personalities. 100% Fresas have been produced in Italy steadfastly through the 1900s, but they're not always exported in large quantities, so they can be difficult to find. It's also a grape that's not widely grown elsewhere. Fresas' unique characteristics offer up a variety of styles, from sweet and lightly sparkling to bone dry and fragrant. In blends, it can bolster acid and tannins. But some of the most moving examples are variety wines. Keep listening to hear more from one producer who makes several classic wines, including a varietal wine from Fresa. I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to idealwine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. Marta Rinaldi of Giuseppe Rinaldi in Barolo in Piemonte. Hello, how are you? Hi. Hi, Levi. So your family's in Barolo for some time now? Uh, yes. Me and my sister, we are the sixth generation right now. And, uh, well, uh, I'm quite happy because there is my sister, too, right now working in the cellar and in the vineyard, especially. Well, my father is still uh, working with us, but uh, I think that he gave uh, quite a lot of space to me and Carlotta, and so uh, we are feeling that we are really going on some new ideas, too. That is great. What are some of those? 
especially when my sister, uh, she's working a lot in the vineyard. In the last uh, three years, we changed the pruning method, trying to not make uh, huge cuts to the vines. So it's the Simonet and Cirque method. It's close to the Pulsar pruning uh, from France. So it's a very old method that maybe is going to uh, make uh, the vines more strong, safe against uh, diseases. And also maybe vines are going to live a little bit more uh, than with the traditional style. Then, uh, well, my sister studied uh, agronomy. So she's really focused right now in, in some uh, organic or biodynamic uh, philosophy and using also some product uh, coming from uh, this kind of viticulture. We would like to uh, use less and less uh, copper and make less treatments with copper and sulfur, using also others uh, kind of natural products that are going to make the plants uh, more strong and safe on their own. I know since the last time we talked, there's been a change in the vineyard composition for the bottlings. Yes, since uh, 2010, we had uh, to change uh, our uh, blends. So my father began in 1992 to make the two blends, Brunate Le Coste and Carnubi San Lorenzo Ravera. Uh, this new European law that arrived uh, in 2010 uh, uh, created some problems to us because we had to change uh, completely the labels and blends. Uh, but at the end, uh, the solution was to come back to what my grandfather used to make. And so uh, Brunate uh, label, 85% Brunate and 15% Lecoste. Uh, and then it was fun because uh, we had this other Barolo without any name because uh, we cannot write the three vineyards on the label. And so uh, we we was thinking about a good name uh, for this Barolo for one year. And then the Tretine arrived, uh, like from the sofa. <laughs> one of us said, Tretine. <laughs> and so it was okay. It was fun. But you mentioned to me once that it could have been that your great-great-grandfather had also blended vineyards. Uh, yes, uh, but also my grandfather uh, used to blend vineyards. Uh, he was producing the Brunate, and then uh, you can find a lot of labels of 70s or 80s uh, uh, named uh, simply Barolo. Uh, he used to make also a Brunate Reserva in the best vintages. So uh, it was really a uh, normal tradition to blend uh, grapes also from uh, different villages, terroir. Um, well, the, the answer is quite simple because uh, using big barrels, uh, sometimes you don't have like uh, enough grapes from just a crew. So if you had gone to Bariks, you could no, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> yes. just joking around. <laughs> So we're going to make uh, 200 liters of Canoe San Lorenzo, that's all. <laughs> so that's interesting, though, because now you get to see, you know, obviously the 15% is blended in with it, but you get to see Brunate on its own, um, which I guess you did before because you used to ferment them separately and then blend them. Yeah, we didn't change too much our style in vinification because uh, we always vinified the different crew in different tine. Uh, and then the final blend was uh, in the last two months before the bottling. So, so really late, really? Uh, yes. Well, or during the aging, uh, you know, when you are racking, uh, maybe you are changing the volume from one barrel to the other. So you begin to blend. But the total final blend was was quite late. And some of it has to do with just the size of the holding, right? In terms of what would be blended and what wouldn't, because the Brunate is a fairly large holding and you could make a wine from it, whereas some of the other holdings are a little smaller. Yes. The reason uh, to keep uh, the Brunate alone is that uh, Brunate is one hectare. So we are producing uh, around 60 hectoliters. So it makes sense when you are working with barrels of 30, 33, 48 hectoliters. It's okay. You do ferments all in wood. Yes, in Tine, in the Tine, so in Piedmontese dialect. Uh, in Italian, we say Tino, uh, but in Piedmontese dialect is Tine. So uh, we are still using this uh, open wood vat 
with maceration of uh, one month normally on natural yeast and uh, natural temperature. Uh, so all the crew are uh, fermented and macerated uh, in a single tina. That is always the same. Yeah. Also because sometimes there is uh, one week uh, from the harvest of uh, Canubi San Lorenzo, for example, and Ravera, that is the last one. So it's not good to add fresh grapes uh, into a fermentation that is already going on, especially if you are working with a natural fermentation. In general, the order is Canubi San Lorenzo as the first of the four. Yes, because uh, well, Canubi uh, is quite rich uh, in sand and uh, is very well exposed. So it's uh, the first vineyard that is ripe in our case. Then um, we make uh, Le Coste, Brunate, and then the last one is uh, Ravera. So southeast, I suppose, uh, near the wood. So it takes a long time to be ripe, especially on the point of view of the acidity. Normally, uh, Ravera is always the last one that we picked. If you were to talk about those four as having characteristics, what would you say for those four? Well, I always feel that Brunate is more classic than the other. So it's what I call Barolo because uh, there is a good quantity of clay and calcare, uh, less uh, sand than in Canubi or La Costa, for example. And there is richness always, Brunate. The vineyard is really well balanced, it's out exposed, so uh, the vines are producing uh, the good quantity of grapes for a great maturation. We never make green harvests uh, in Brunate. Vines are around 38 years old, and uh, I always feel uh, the taste uh, of the clay or mushrooms, uh, the dark fruit, uh, and then during the aging, uh, you feel uh, the licorice, uh, truffles. Uh, it's completely a different kind of uh, Barolo than in Canubi, where uh, you feel more a balsamic side, eucalypto, during the aging. And tannins are less large than in Brunate, more vertical. This is the effect of the sand. The origin of the two hills that are facing one to the other are different also in the period. And the composition of the soil is completely different. So the ridge of Canubi and the ridge of Brunate actually face each other? Yes. I'm talking about uh, Canubi San Lorenzo. Of course, uh, the historical Canubi is completely south. So yes, some ways they are facing one to the other, but they are both looking at the sun. But they actually have different soil types, even though they're that close. See, si, see, si. the original history of the soils, but also the color, you see more blue clay in Brunate and the sand, the marl of Canubi is more clear, more white. And your parcel in Brunate is a full Barolo parcel. It's not in Lamora. It's in Barolo, yes. I think the biggest part of Brunate is in Lamora, but we have this sector in Barolo. Do you think it's a little different in the sectors? Sometimes uh, we feel that uh, there is uh, differences between uh, 50 meters and 100 meters. For example, in our Brunate, there is the left side that is uh, a little bit more poor. So uh, there are some vines <laughs> that uh, are not so strong. So there is not a lot of vegetation. The same stuff here in Le Coste. So there is one side that is really more powerful and vines are more tall and a lot of uh, leaves. So it's really a question of uh, natural composition of the soil. It's not a question of technique or, or agronomy methods. You cannot do anything. If the soil has not the right uh, balance uh, and uh, nutrition. Are they all planted to the same rootstock, the four vineyards? Not all of them. We have some uh, 420A and some Cobra 5BB. In this region, these uh, two are the, the most used. We are very lucky because we have very rich soils. 
as you can see, vines here are not suffering the dry climate because this clay is very deep. It's going to keep a lot of the water and nutrition. So, so uh, it's really a lucky place for vines. Is there a rosé clone in the vineyard? Some vines. Sometimes you see some vines of the rosé. In general, uh, now all the clones are of Lampia. But uh, yes, there is one or two here in Lacoste. So the vine age in Brunate is about 38 years, you said? Yes. My grandfather in the end of the 70s replanted, uh, not all together, so um, before half of Lacoste, then half of Brunate. So, you know, you don't have uh, vintages without production. My grandfather bought uh, Cannubi San Lorenzo later. It's the only vineyard that uh, he bought because uh, luckily uh, we had uh, Brunate, Le Coste, Ravera. Maybe it's my great-grandfather or, or before. Uh, my grandfather bought Cannubi San Lorenzo, 80s. So uh, in 1870s, there was this huge estate as Borgogno or Marchese di Barolo at the time. It was the Baraglia Rinaldi. So uh, the Baraglia Rinaldi uh, was really a huge estate. Uh, maybe they made also Bracchetto, Moscato, uh, a lot of uh, wines. Then uh, in 1916, uh, this house and this cellar were built from my great-grandfather. Uh, and so uh, in these years, uh, the Baralla Rinaldi estate finished and uh, we began to have uh, the Giuseppe Rinaldi, the Francesco Rinaldi and the Baralla Fratelli. But uh, the vineyards are coming from uh, the history of the Baralla Rinaldi at the end. Do you think your father and grandfather have some similarities? Or? People are always telling me that my grandfather was like, uh, he was coming from the war. So he had a really bad time. He escaped uh, from a train going to uh, Campo di Concentramento. So uh, in some ways he was really lucky. But well, I think that those are stuff in life that change you. Well, he was really like a captain. <laughs> so very militare in a lot of stuff. So a uh, strong character. Well, uh, yes, I think that at the end, uh, the genetical sides <laughs> are going to pass by one generation to the other. So you personally, when do you think that you decided you wanted to stick around? I don't remember that, my, but my sister said to me, I remember when you was like uh, four or five years old when you was telling, uh, I'm going to make wine. <laughs> yeah. And so, yes, maybe I decided uh, quite early. I I didn't really want to make wine, but I was really focused uh, to study at the Enological School of Alp. So I was really, I want to go to study there because, uh, well, my grandfather studied there, also my great-grandfather. And here in the house, uh, I always heard uh, good uh, <laughs> news about this school and so uh, this was my decision. So uh, it's normal to me. I spent my life <laughs> in this cellar. So, uh, Did yeah. you play there when you were a kid or was that forbidden? Of course, I was used to run <laughs> in the cellar and my father was telling me, don't run, it's dangerous. <laughs> Do you ever like move something and then see your name like scrawled on the wall? Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, <laughs> I was opening stuff and changing numbers on the barrels and so... <laughs> Did you ever have that feeling as you got older? Like, oh, I, I look at this differently now. Well, uh, I think that uh, uh, everyone in, in this house has a huge personality. <laughs> so everyone is bringing something. Someone is putting photos on the wall or pictures uh, or whatever, poetries. <laughs> it's beginning to be a small place <laughs> for all the stuff that we have. <laughs> So you get back around 2007 then? Yes, in the beginning of 2007, then I graduated in July 2009. Well, 
my father, when he saw me here in uh, back in Barolo every morning, he was telling me, so when you're coming <laughs> to work with me, I have a lot of stuff to do today, but I, I was going to my class, at, uh, to my own university, because uh, I liked uh, to go to lesson. And so, yeah, I was, uh, I was studying and also working, but I've always been working during the harvest, of course. But when, when I, I was back in 2007, yes, I spent more time. I began to spend more time. And uh, the first stuff was to take on my hand uh, the office uh, because my father didn't like to do that. It's not just bills or papers. Uh, it's begin to understand the structure of your agenda that is maybe a natural uh, process uh, because uh, there was never uh, really a strategy on our cantina. No, it was just, okay, let it go. Yes, uh, now we are sending the wine to this one. Then there is one uh, that is really a good person. So we have to get some wine. <laughs> so sometimes we had like uh, five importers, uh, <laughs> one kilometer <laughs> to the other. So, uh, yeah, I began to understand uh, the natural strategy that my grandfather and my father organized in some ways. And then, yes, I, I began to be more close to the vinification. But we always been uh, working with quite a soft <laughs> spirit, soft soul. So, yes, I never seen my father thinking too much about stuff. So like, okay, now we, we do that because uh, the story is telling us that if you do that, uh, this is uh, the right stuff. <laughs> so, but even if there is scientific background, but it's more, I don't know how to say in English, more empirical. It's like more, okay, the feeling uh, is like that. It's okay. We don't make too many analysis or numbers. Uh, we don't check stuff uh, too many times. So maybe a little different than school. Yes, I studied a lot chemistry, but it's normal. You know, if you study analogy, maybe you're going to work uh, for, uh, I don't know, Cavit to produce two million bottles. So you have to have the technique uh, and the knowledge on your hand. From my point of view, I like to have this scientific background. So I know why things are happening in the wine on the point of view of the chemistry of the biology. But then you make your choice using the technique. But it must have been interesting to come back and be like, oh, I see why that works yes. all this time. Because yeah. I, now I know the, the chemistry. So that makes sense that that would work. Yeah, You have your answers, scientific answers sometimes, and you feel more safe if you know why things are done like that since three, four generations. But I feel like it could have been that you came back and said, like, okay, we're going to play it more safe. But I, my read of the wines is that that's not the case. If anything, maybe a little more wild. Yes, uh, I like uh, the souls in wines. And I think that sometimes you need to go on. Uh, don't think too much about the final results that you want, but think more uh, at the beginning the best that you can do with the grapes that you have. Be careful during all the process. Uh, but well, uh, I don't feel frustrated that uh, at the end, the result uh, uh, is not the best. So I can accept that uh, sometimes you have too much alcohol, you will like half degrees. Alas, uh, also about the, the volatile, sometimes uh, is high. Uh, in our Barolo. But, you know, I think that trying to control more the vinification and the stuff is going to show less our idea of wine or also showing less the terroir, the characteristics uh, of the climate of the year and uh, of the vinification. I feel like in a way, the fact that you have old bottles to open kind of is a proof that this can work if you do it this way. Yeah, well, uh, it's very hard to me to uh, judge 
<laughs> our wines. <laughs> I think that winemakers uh, intimately are never really happy <laughs> about uh, their wines. So uh, I just uh, want to uh, feel that our wines are very drinkable. I like uh, these characteristics in general in wines. And uh, I would like that the Barolo will uh, live many years. So uh, I like wines that are improving during uh, the aging. And I would like to open a bottle of 2012 or 13 or 10 in 20, 25 years uh, and find uh, the wine alive with a lot of energy and maybe better than younger. Because I remember your dad saying, I don't know exactly the translation, but he, he was okay certainly with the idea of the wine never being ready, if that's what <laughs> was going to happen. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it's better to think about uh, stuff uh, Getting all the, always better, you know, you feel uh, more adrenaline, no? <laughs> you know, when you are waiting for something, you always have a lot of energy on you. So uh, maybe it's that kind of philosophy or, or idea. Okay, yes, now is good, but it's going to be better in 10 years. <laughs> Back to the idea about learning the finances of the business, that must have been interesting to look at the invoices of the past and see a changing Barolo market. Yes, the stuff changed a lot in the area, I think, in general. On our point of view, we tried, uh, well, to stay calm with prices. Um, well, we didn't have any chance to buy new vineyards. So right now we are still producing these 38, 40,000 bottles, the same of my grandfather. But uh, it's really weird to think about that in 1990, uh, my father and my grandfather had to sell uh, some hectoliters of Barolo 1990 because uh, the cellar was full because uh, they had uh, really good vintages uh, with a good amount of production, uh, 85, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 90, another time. So, uh, well, uh, they had like uh, three, four vintages uh, in Cantina to be sold, and uh, another one uh, so good <laughs> and uh, with such a high production was too much for the space. <laughs> so they, they had to sold uh, some hectoliters or night. So uh, this is really uh, interesting to think about how stuff changed. Now we have already the 2012 sold out, no 11, 10, 9, 8. But I think it's good to think about these fast changes uh, and keep... Uh, calm and keep uh, the old markets, uh, the private customers. So uh, this is what we did in the last years. Of course, if you see the bills uh, of, I don't know, maybe like the 1998 uh, was uh, 20, 21 euros, something like that. But well, everything now is a little bit more expensive than before. So we had to. But, well, I think right now we have a good balance between our uh, way of life. Uh, there is a, ba a financial balance in the azienda. So we don't want to increase too much prices because uh, sometimes that means that you have to change uh, your customers, your public, especially about uh, our private customers that at the end... Uh, they stayed uh, close to us uh, in every kind of vintages, in every kind of period, uh, also when Barolo was not so famous around the world. must be interesting to talk to those people about their tasting history. I would just imagine as a younger person coming back into the winery, it'd be interesting to talk to the, some of the older clientele. Yes, yeah. I, I think we have customers, especially from Germany, and Switzerland that maybe they have from the 1978 vintage uh, up to the 2013. But right now they, they are drinking the 80s. <laughs> so uh, we have to wait some years 
to know about differences. Of course, uh, climate changed a bit. So uh, in the 80s uh, and the beginning of the 90s, there were a lot of uh, difficult vintages with hail, with a lot of rain. So it was not such an easy viticulture sometimes. Grapes were not uh, so beautiful like uh, in, in last vintages now. I also think that at the end, the, the degree of alcohol uh, in, is a little bit higher than uh, in uh, 80s. But, well, right now, all the customers are, that are coming back, they are happy. they always t- been tasting uh, all the vintages, and uh, I always have uh, some positive uh, answering about the tastings. Do you think that a little bit more ripeness, maybe a touch more alcohol, affects how fast the ferment happens, for example? Does it affect all down the chain? When you pick grapes uh, that are um, warmer, uh, 20, 22 degrees, uh, like 2011, for example, the high temperature is going to uh, produce a faster fermentation because yeast uh, are very active at the beginning. So also the multiplication is faster. Uh, it's not good to me to have a too warm and fast fermentation because uh, you cannot do a long maceration if the fermentation is really fast. Because uh, the cap of skins at the end is going down quite fastly because the density of the wine is changing very fast. And you're looking for that length of skin contact? We just uh, continue with the maceration until uh, the cap of skins is naturally going down. Oh, that's the measure. uh, It's not like you say, okay, we're going to have a certain amount of days. No. Uh, in 2011 was not too long, it was around 20 days. Uh, 2013, we, we made a month maceration, so it really depends. If the climate outside is very cold, the yeast are going to be sleepy and uh, the multiplication and the fermentation are really slow. That then amplifies the idea of a cold versus warm vintage beyond the fact of the ripeness of the grapes. So when you pick. Yes, yes. Uh, about uh, the vinification, uh, yes. And uh, normally when you have uh, a very warm vintage, uh, of course you have more concentration, you have more alcohol. The natural yeast uh, cannot afford sometimes a huge amount of alcohol. So uh, they are going to be quite stressed and it's hard uh, to finish all the sugar. So we never want a very warm grape and hot climate during the maceration, the fermentation. How do you feel about stems? We always stem. Is not one of the other stuff that we say, okay, why people in uh, maybe a hundred years in this area were distemming uh, all the grapes? Maybe the answer is <laughs> 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 because it's better to distem because uh, I don't feel that Nebbiolo is a poor grape uh, in uh, skins, tannins, and flavors, structure. So, uh, I think that trying to add something for the stem, it is not going to be positive for our wines, especially because normally the stem is very rich in potassium. Uh, Nebbiolo is not such a high acidity grape and the potassium is going to make the acidity lower. What about lees? It depends. For example, in 2014, that was quite a hard harvest. Uh, we had the hail, the rain. So at the end, uh, the Nebbiolo was not too rich. So uh, we didn't rack for the first year. But, well, I don't know if we improved uh, <laughs> the wine. But we thought to let for a bit to see if maybe the structure is going to be better. Normally, no. 
normally we rack uh, four or five times during all the aging, all the three years of aging, uh, having a natural decantation. Also because we don't make filtration, and so we try to have clean wine. Was that always the case? I mean, in terms of the family? Because I feel sometimes when I've opened something from the 80s, maybe it seemed a little reductive at first. Yeah. Well, uh, who knows? Because I was not there. But uh, I think that in this kind of vintages, 80s, beginning of the 90s, uh, my grandfather and my father were picking grapes uh, less ripe. Maybe the climate was uh, cold, so maceration were uh, a little bit more long than now. About uh, racking, well, I, I like to rack wines. I don't want to feel that the wine is always clean, uh, but, uh, well, I try to not have a reduction uh, when I put in bottle the wines. But, well, I can accept uh, to wait a little bit more in the glass. It's always better than oxidation, the reduction. So uh, I'm not scared, especially on Nebbiolo, because uh, it's not a huge problem, the reduction, because it is easily going away. And I'm guessing you don't really blend in any press wine. We press, uh, but we uh, taste uh, pressing. Uh, so uh, when we feel uh, that uh, the wine is uh, going to be a little bit more green or tannic, we make a wine table with uh, the second press wine. A table wine. Yes, but we don't have such a strong press. So at the end, we don't use a high pressure. Because there is a real finesse to the wines. I mean, especially when you taste them from wood before bottling, I feel like there's a translucency. It's rare. I mean, I see it maybe in a couple other instances, maybe a little bit sometimes with Pinot, sometimes with... Yeah. It's always, I think, easier to taste wines from the barrel, especially if you have a huge volume, because it seems that the wine is more relaxed, more calm. And uh, sometimes um, the level of sulfur in barrel is quite low. Normally here, when we taste Barolo in barrel, it has 30, 35 milligrams of sulfurosa totale. So it's really low. So sometimes uh, less sulfur means more personality. But I believe that uh, it's good to use a bit of sulfur or in our wines to protect them against the oxygen when you rack, when you put in bottles, so go up to 60 at least. And the four vineyards, do they do a different kind of evolution that you recognize as a pattern? You know, does Rivera act in a certain way over four years that's different from mm. La Costa on a typical? Brunate in a classical vintage is the one that is going to make a slower evolution but also Ravera, because Ravera, in different ways, um, Brunate on the nose sometimes uh, is more closed. And Ravera on the other side normally has flavors are more opened, but uh, tannins uh, and acidity sometimes are more uh, strict than Brunate. Uh, Le Coste and Candove San Lorenzo are the two ones that are always more kind, uh, more feminine. Do you see a difference in malic acidity? Uh, I don't uh, check the malic. Normally, the malolactic fermentation is never a problem on Nebbiolo. The Nebbiolo just makes the malo on his own when he wants, (laughs) during the spring or during the summer. So uh, the Barbera normally has a higher acidity. The Malolactic is a little bit more difficult, uh, especially in the very cold vintages on Barbera. About Nebbiolo, if you have a good uh, exposition and you pick the grape uh, ripe, uh, the acidity is not going to be a problem, never. So I think there is more a question of uh, exposition and sun for the Nebbiolo. Is there chestnut in the cellar? Uh, no, we just have uh, we just have oak, Slavonian oak. 
also the tin that we use our oak. Uh, one of them is a Piedmontese oak, the tina from uh, Brunat, the oldest that we have, uh, is a Piedmontese oak. The other is all uh, Slavonian oak. And uh, we are buying uh, almost all the barrels from Garbellotto. It seems like a long relationship, given how much Garbellotto is in the cellar. Yeah, we are, we are not the ones that change <laughs> a lot. <laughs> as you know so also about corks we buy corks just from one person one uh, producer we just have one producer barrels <laughs> so if uh, we are uh, okay with someone uh, we like to stay uh, with them if people came into the wines when i did your father's era in terms of the vintages Maybe they have a certain idea of the aging curve of the wines. Mm -hmm. But now that the proportions of vineyards and the bottlings have moved, do you sense that the curves are different? I don't think that there are huge changes uh, in the two blends. In Tretine has a little bit of Lacoste and Brunate. It's more Brunate than Lacoste, but I feel safe about that because Brunate is a great uh, vineyard. So I think that... Uh, I've heard uh, of it before. See, si. <laughs> For the family, is there a cuvee of just Lacoste or just Rivera? Yeah, we we are bottling some uh, bottles of uh, pure Brunate. But, well, it's very hard. I will taste sometimes Brunate and Brunate le Coste, but, well, I don't think that there is this huge, incredible difference. We see. We have to check after 10, 15 years. I can be there for that when yes. you want to do it. I'm of just course. saying. I'll of make course. time. <laughs> no problems. <laughs> and one of the things that it really dawned on me after coming here for a while is that the other grape varieties are superb here. In my opinion, Frasia, Dolce Addo, si. Barbera. I tend to like these wines a great deal. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, well, it's really nice to work with different grapes, I think, in a cellar. And uh, I like to uh, keep also, to be a keeper of a variety like Fraser, for example, that is uh, almost disappearing. It's a, it's a great challenge uh, and it's fun. To begin the harvest with Dolcetto, then uh, Rouquet too, then Fraise, and then wait uh, for uh, Barbera and Nebbiolo. Yeah, and maybe Nebbiolo is the easiest to vinify at the end. So, uh, working with uh, Dolcetto, for example, or Fraise, you have to be uh, really uh, present uh, and uh, be careful uh, about reductions. And also, the grape variety is not too easy to grow uh, then I feel that the diversity the biodiversity in in everything is good so also in a cellar to have a different kind of wines at least making uh, the winemaker more open and uh, is a good challenge too have there been times where you learned something from a grape variety and then brought it into the character what you understand about a different grape variety when you have uh, Dolcetto and Fraisa, for example, you have to be uh, really careful uh, during the vinification, especially because of tannins. So Dolcetto, the name is Dolcetto, but it's not sweet and it's quite bitter and tannic too. So uh, about the maceration, maybe you can see how one or two days uh, more on the skins uh, could really change stuff then uh, well I don't know if it's true but my father always said uh, that sometimes the Fraser is getting uh, very tannic uh, during the maceration but if you if you go on other one two days <laughs> tannins are going to come back <laughs> to the skins so I don't know if it is true but uh, sometimes we did that so, okay, it is going to be very tannic. Okay, just wait other two days, maybe. But, well, I didn't do any analysis, so I don't know, but well, could be. And what's the history with the Ruke? Because it's not the traditional zone for Ruke. It was a friend of my grandfather that was coming from the era of Ruke, so Castagnole, Scurzolengo, the area of Monferrato. 
And uh, well, my grandfather had a little piece of land uh, without any vines. So he, this friend told him, okay, I'm bringing to you uh, uh, Rouquet vines and you have to put, this is a good place for Rouquet. That is in Ravera. So uh, I think that the first vintage was 1992 of the Rouquet. Because in the historical zone, it was often made into a dessert wine, Rouquet, in the past. This is this sweet, uh, aromatic side of the Rouquet that could make uh, the Rouquet uh, dessert wine. But well, we vinified the Rouquet as a dolcetto. So uh, it's curious because uh, you feel this aromatic rose side uh, on the nose, but then uh, in the mouth uh, it's quite a structured wine. But uh, this is because of uh, the terroir. So this land is giving always a lot of uh, structure and tannins uh, to all the varieties. And I remember, and you'll have to help me here, but I remember of those four Grape Fridays, they were all vinified in the same way except for one of them. Well, uh, we vinify Dolcetto and Rouquet. Uh, they are quite similar. Uh, the phrase are a little bit more of maceration and the Barbera too. But at the end, yes, um, it's not such a long maceration on this kind of grapes. So just uh, 10, 12 days, not more. And then we make the Malo in stainless steel. And then uh, Barbera and Fraser are going to make some wood. So four or five month barrels uh, on Dolcetto and Rouquet. Um, we want to keep better the freshness of the flavors. So just stainless steel. The whole life. Yes, just one year in total. You said with Barbera, the malic is difficult sometimes. The acidity is higher. The complex acidity is high. So uh, sometimes because of uh, a low pH, uh, bacteria uh, are a little bit shy <laughs> during the malolactic. So uh, yes, in the very cold vintages, uh, it's better to wait a little bit more uh, for the harvest uh, or you're not going to finish the malo. So there's never been a history in the family then of buying grapes in from another crew? Like there's never like a one-off of a crew that's not the same? Um, you know, um, we like uh, to know what we are vinifying. And uh, first, uh, I think we are grape growers. Uh, then uh, we are winemakers. Uh, especially if you want to make uh, fermentation with natural yeast. Uh, and uh, if you want really to understand uh, what is the terroir, how is going to be uh, maybe the best expression of the vineyard, uh, you really have to know the place and know how was the pruning, uh, how are vines, uh, uh, which kind of product uh, you use uh, for the treatments. So um, we are on the organic uh, philosophy in the vineyards. So uh, we don't want to have grapes uh, that have some other kind of chemistry inside. First, uh, for uh, our idea. And second, uh, for because of the fermentation. So natural yeast uh, don't like uh, pesticides uh, or uh, other kind of uh, systemical chemistry. So you can keep your own culture in your own cellar the way you want it. Uh, yes, yes, of course. I I would like to uh, to try to vinify another great historical vineyard. Uh, but first, I would like to grow the, the vines and know the place. I think that's a very compelling answer. I've never heard anyone say it that way, but it makes like total sense when you think it through like, yeah. about the yeast. Mm. So has the cellar always been the same size or has it enlarged physically? Uh, well, physically, yes, a little, it's a little bit larger because my father likes to build. <laughs> 
And uh, well, we are lucky because uh, we are producing uh, just 38,000 bottles, but we have a lot of space. So we can work uh, very easily in the cellar. We have a place where we put the bottles, another one uh, labeling, uh, another one bottling. Uh, so this is uh, really relaxing. And working with your father, have you felt a change in your relationship? First, uh, when you work with someone of the family, uh, is is someone of the family, so it's not uh, <laughs> your boss. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's normal that uh, uh, the relationship that you have is uh, totally coming in <laughs> the the job. For that, is harder. You know, you have a boss, uh, uh, you have kind of balance that could be bad, but you have a balance. So this is my space and this is yours. That's all. Uh, when you are of the same family, there are not uh, borders. So uh, your life is completely inside your job. And uh, sometimes if you have to discuss uh, about stuff, others are coming inside. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that was maybe the most uh, difficult uh, stuff. And then I think that there is an incredibly huge uh, difference uh, between the generation of my father and our generation because uh, we are the generation of the technology, of the exchanges uh, with the world, uh, internet, uh, everything is getting faster so uh yeah it's quite difficult my father doesn't have a mobile phone for example <laughs> so uh two completely different words that have to live uh, in the same uh, small <laughs> the end place uh, but well the stuff is always uh, being i think intelligent smart so i uh, understand that if you have uh, the same project, uh, you know uh, which is the direction, so you can really make huge efforts to understand the other and uh, understand uh, that sometimes uh, differences, these huge differences uh, cannot be uh, cut and you have to accept and, uh, how do you say, conviverci. So, living. Get along. Are there things that you particularly admire about your dad? Well, at the end, I'm from the generation of the technology <laughs> and uh, is, uh, is really incredible for me uh, to see someone living uh, with a mobile phone uh, without uh, knowing uh, about anything about a computer. And so uh, I feel... Uh, a romantic uh, kind of uh, uh, freedom on that. The mobile phone and, and all this technology is not really freedom sometimes. This is the true freedom to say, okay, I'm going to Alba. Okay, from this moment, you don't know anything <laughs> about this person, where it is going to go, when it is going to come back. You know, you cannot reach him, you cannot call him. <laughs> so uh, this is uh, pure freedom to me. And then uh, I admire the coherenza that he had uh, during uh, all the times uh, of the history of Barolo. So at the times of the the other style of Barolo, so the more modern Barolo. And then, um, well, he is a person that he, he seems to be always uh, safe and uh, very strong uh, about his ideas. Uh, so uh, this is, uh, for me, uh, admiration about this. Do you think his time in California shaped anything? Could that time studying to be veterinarian in California? Do you think for your father, it put him on any kind of path? He was very uh, passionate about uh, animals, especially huge animals. He liked very much uh, the trip in California. It was very hot, <laughs> but uh, well, he is uh, at the end a scientific uh, man. 
So uh, Davis uh, is a place uh, where they are really focused in biology and about the diseases of the animals. Uh, so um, he really liked uh, this experience. He was really sorry in the last years, uh, the word of the vet, uh, because uh, bureaucracy was beginning to arrive. So he always says, uh, I was beginning to be a paper man. But uh, I started to look at animals, <laughs> not bureaucracy. In this region, and maybe it's hard for me to judge because people are different here than what I'm used to, right? But sometimes I see situations where I feel like the younger generation has a lot of weight on their shoulders to live mm -hmm. up to something, to yeah. some sort of something. And with you, I don't know, you seem pretty at ease with your thing. And maybe you just carry it well. Or What do you feel about that? I began to brief this family business very young. So I, uh, I grew up in this uh, world, uh, knowing uh, what I wanted. And uh, I think I really worked hard about uh, school, studying uh, and uh, working and look at what my, my father was making. So... Uh, you know, when you uh, know that you are uh, really applying uh, all your energies on something, you already feel uh, a little bit more uh, grateful, a little bit more uh, maybe safe. Uh, then uh, I think that having a lot of friends also out from Barolo other winemakers, uh, other people that love wines, who with that you can exchange uh, experiences, uh, methods and ideas. Uh, it makes you feeling really part of uh, really an entire world of vigneron uh, with strong ideas. So uh, maybe that is making me happy first and uh, safe. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I don't really feel uh, on my shoulder such a, <laughs> a huge thing. Also because there is my sister, so we are sharing. <laughs> Four shoulders. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, I think also my father had on his back uh, a huge weight. But being uh, coherent uh, with your ideas and uh, what you do, is already half of the work. When you talk with your sister about vineyard work and how it's going to work with the winery, what do you talk about and how does it go? Right now, I uh, supporting my sister about uh, some changes uh, in the vineyard because I trust in her ideas. And uh, I, at this time, I like to be out from uh, her decisions because uh, I did the same. So I took some of my decision on my own and that was good for my personality and character. And I wanted uh, my father to stay out uh, from uh, some stuff. So I think that could be great for me uh, to let her try and well also make mistakes if there will be some mistakes. And then, of course, uh, we share everything. Uh, but, uh, well, I like uh, right now uh, my space and your space. Uh, but then we share a lot of stuff. So especially in the cellar, you know, label, uh, we rack together. Sometimes I go to the vineyard. So this is the, the idea. So it's been a few years since we spoke the first time. If we talk again in a few years, not for the podcast, but just to say hello, what do you think is going to have been important to you in the intervening years? Well, for us, it's a, it's a beautiful moment because we had a series of really beautiful vintages and uh, the wines that we have in the cellar, they are really, uh, really good to me. And... Um, I would like to uh, improve. Never ends. <laughs> it never ends. So it's, uh, it's good to sometimes also try 
something different, something new. Doesn't uh, mean change stuff, make revolutions, but uh, trying to improve. And then, uh, well, sometimes I just think that it's important to try to keep well what you have, not uh, doing too much. So uh, trying to stay small and uh, keeping relations uh, or making new kind of good relations with other winemakers, for sure. Yeah, Right now we are very interested uh, in sharing stuff uh, with other uh, vineyards of the world. It's been a beautiful moment for Marta Rinaldi at Giuseppe Rinaldi in Barolo. Thank you very much for Thank being here today. Thank you very much, Levi. <laughs> Grazie. Marta Rinaldi works with her family at Giuseppe Rinaldi in Barolo in the Piemonte. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.